the stupid vampire voice gets so harder like every time I do it <laughs> I just feel more and more stupid <laughs> but I'm not gonna like stop doing the vampire voice <laughs> vampire chronicles then okay yeah. fourth time fourth time Good evening, and welcome to In Review with the Vampire, a weekly podcast about reading through Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles novels. I'm Olivia, and with me is Ashling. Uh. All right. Should we just go? Jump in? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, unless we want to mix up the format so far, we've just jumped right into the summary and then... Uh, yeah, I don't think there's much to say other than, like, we're live. Hey! Hi, this is our first like week episode, weekly episode, basically. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Here's your summary. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's a learning experience. Oh, this is all staying in. <laughs> Despite their conflicts, Louis and Lestat continue living living at Point du Lac. Louis feels trapped because Lestat insists. There is more he must know about being a vampire. Louis tries to hide the truth from his family, but it is difficult to find new lies about why he cannot see them, or why he must miss important events. He tries to stay detached and without emotion, but he struggles to hide his disdain for Lestat. Louis tells the boy about Lestat's favorite kind of prey, young, successful men, who he believes represent the greatest loss of potential. Lestat stalks Frenier, a young owner of a nearby plantation, who is the sole son of a family with five sisters. When Frenier accepts a duel, which he fears he'll lose, Lestat wishes to kill him first. Louis manages to stop Lestat from interfering with the duel. Frenier wins the duel, but the other man pulls a gun to shoot him while his back is turned. As Louis tries to prevent this, Lestat takes the opportunity to kill Frenier. Louis fears for the Frenier sisters, who may be unable to continue on without their brother to run the plantation. Louis reveals himself to the eldest, Babette, for whom he has strong feelings. Louis believes she has what it takes to run the plantation herself. Unnerved by his strange appearance, Babette follows his advice and successfully leaves the plantation. Louis visits her one other time, as Babette struggles with negative public reception for running the plantation in her brother's absence. He advises her to give a large charity ball for a convent in New Orleans and following his advice proves once again fortuitous for Babette. In 1795, after four years of living comfortably, the slaves of Pointe du Lac are suspicious that Louis and Lestat are supernatural beings. Louis shadows the slaves at night, overhearing them talk of coffins and blaming the abundance of mysterious deaths around the plantation on them. The slaves hope to destroy Louis and Lestat as devils, and while Louis is sure people will not believe the slaves' tales, he decides he and Lestat should move to New Orleans. Lestat doesn't want to give up their luxurious lifestyle, nor does he want to move his dying father. As his father's death becomes inevitable, Lestat panics, treating his father cruelly and asking Louis to kill him. Tension rises as the slaves hover suspiciously around the house. Louis tells their leader, Daniel, 
to keep the rest of the slaves away because a doctor is coming for the old man. Daniel sees Lestat's vampire's teeth and tries to flee, but is stabbed by Louis in a panic. Believing Louis to be Lestat, the old man apologizes for denying him the education he wanted. When Lestat returns, Louis demands Lestat forgive his father, then fulfills his promise to take the man's life. Louis and Lestat massacre the slaves, with some escaping to nearby plantations. Louis sets the house alight, despite Lestat's protests. With dawn drawing near, the vampires need a place to spend the daylight hours. They take their coffin to Babette's, and Louis begs her to shelter them reminding her of the good advice he has given her over the years. Although fearful, Babette relents and locks the vampires into a wine cellar. The following evening, Lestat thinks they've been tricked, but Babette, Babette unlocks the door after everyone is asleep. Having learned from the survivors what Louis and Lestat did at Point du Lac, but remembering the ways Louis helped her in the past, she feels conflicted. She accuses them of being from the devil. Louis sends Lestat to get their carriage while he tries to explain himself to Babette, who won't listen. She sets Louis on fire with a lantern, but Lestat extinguishes the flame. Lestat tries to kill her, biting her neck, but Louis stops him. The two flee. Louis begs Babette to remember he never hurt her and stop Lestat from killing her, hoping she won't hate him for what he is. Alright. So, I think Today's chapter gives us a little opportunity to talk about the importance of tone, because last time I was like, oh yeah, a lot happens in this chapter, uh, as a commentary on the pacing. And this week I'm like, a lot happens in this chapter, in terms of like, Jesus, Anne Rice, you want to just talk about the slavery thing first? Capital A, capital L, a lot happens in this chapter. Yeah. It's like, so I think there's like, if we're going to continue doing a podcast about it, there's going to be some concessions we will have to make, but like acknowledging that they're not good and it's not good. <laughs> yeah. There's that, um, like this is the, these, all of these actions surrounding slavery and killing slaves and are things that are probably not easy to say that a character can redeem themselves of even though that is kind of like something that the story wants you to engage with is like the idea of like are these characters always evil can they can they overcome their evil can they you know so Mm -hmm. yeah it's like (laughs) it's something i'm gonna be thinking about like probably for every other book down the line, anytime I'm asked to like sympathize with these characters, is I'm gonna be like, one remembered the fact that they were slave owners for Louis's entire life, four to five years for Lestat, and then the time they massacred them all. And also on a like on a metatextual level as well, like uh-huh. obviously like the the stuff with the with you know what they do in the story is bad but i think like from a construct from like constructing a story on that kind of level and speaking here as like somebody who writes as like a hobby um and also specifically a white person who writes as a hobby like i don't have like 
any lived experience about like racism or slavery to talk about. But my personal belief is like that white people like me should just not write about slavery. I think that, you know, for writers, the whole world is not a grab bag for us to like take and use to tell stories. And I think especially for white writers, you know, Mm -hmm. I've never heard an argument that like a white writer can use slavery in a story in such a way that it justifies like invoking slavery to tell whatever story you're telling, you know? And then it also doesn't, it also doesn't work. Yeah, it also doesn't work on a second level where like, even if I suspend that belief of mine and I try to look at the story and be like, okay, let's assume that you can invoke slavery and use it to tell a story in such a way that you could make an argument for why it was like justifiable for you to do that for the sake of the art, which is what I tried to do last week and say, okay, you know, if they are... If the story is going to confront the fact that Louis and Lestat are slave owners and they're participating in this complete evil of slavery and like really reckon with it and tie it into the fact that they are these beings who kill other innocent or kill innocents to survive, I could, I was like, I could see, you know, that being, you know, an argument that I wouldn't personally agree with, but I could accept, but it just really doesn't like... The Uh slaves in this story are not, they're not characters. They don't have any part in the story. You have to listen to Louis say a bunch of racist things about them. And then they don't do anything for the story that like any other character could do. Like they could have been discovered by anybody. Why do we have to, you know, invoke slavery? Why Why is this story, why is this part of the story so tied up in it? And it just feels... jarring uncomfortable and like unwise as a writing decision in quite a few ways it's it's bad Mm -hmm. um so yeah so i think our official stance on this is that it's bad in just about every way it could be bad and Mm -hmm. if you were reading this on your own you probably wouldn't even um like you wouldn't try to you wouldn't engage with it the way the book wants you to engage with it but for the sake of the podcast we'll we'll have to like continue reading the book and engage with the ideas of like evil and good and redemption and growth the way the book wants us to despite the fact that it's totally reasonable to not want to do that after these first two chapters yeah my like Part of the reason why I'm, why this thing, why I'm like, this is just a bad step is because most of the stories, like things I am interested in reading about, I'm excited to read more. I want to know what happens. And it's frustrating as a reader that the things that I like in the story are also bound up with the fact that I'm reading about like two slave owners, you know, and it's, uh, you know, I don't, I can't know what the writing decision behind it was but i wish the decision had been different because i think it's a real blemish on a story that otherwise i can kind of i can get into Uh but if i was the editor i'd have a special kind of ink for don't do this shit and send it back but we are the readers 
All right, so I guess we will move on to the topics that aren't just pure bad. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to I wanted to return to like a thing we talked about last week, um talking about like uh Louis and Lestat's emotional attachments and their emotions in general because mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, last week I was I was wondering if vampires had emotions in the same way that humans do and i was like this should be an interesting thing to look out for and then this chapter was kind of like no they definitely do (laughs) so feeling yeah i mean sometimes you make predictions and then they get shot down but i think this is definitely a chapter where we see both louis and lestat definitely like i would say that my understanding of how vampirism works in this story now is it does change you and your personality and your perspective, but not in a supernatural way, in actually a very natural way where like new life experiences change who you are because mm-hmm. yeah, it's simply a major life event that causes you to change in the way that any major life event would change you is what I'm assuming you mean. Yeah, because there's a there's a bit where Louis talks about his interactions with his family after he's become a vampire mm-hmm. and he is able to, you know, visit his uh, mother and sister who still don't get names. I wish they would have gotten names because it's becoming. <laughs> come on now. Uh, just pick two French names and it's not that hard, but like he he visits them after dark in New Orleans and he goes on these walks with his sister where they talk and he says they talk in a way that they didn't when he was human like he's more as much as he is like making excuses to not have to appear to them in daylight he is like more attentive to their needs he seems like he actually grows closer with his sister after becoming a vampire and it's definitely like you know he he still cares for his family um in the same way i think we can I think I feel comfortable saying now, like, it is a genuine affection on his part. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a similar thing to the claustrophobia um, that he was sort of going through the motions of in the first chapter. Like, he cares. Yeah. And yeah, Lest- we can get some things that hint toward the idea that Lestat, I mean, he, he treats his father pretty poorly, but there's at least a part of him that cares more than he wants to, in a way. Yeah, he treats his father poorly, but in the way that, like, a human does. Like, mm-hmm. he and his dad have, like, a very a shitty, complicated, painful, but also very human relationship of, like, mm-hmm. uh, if we can, if we can believe what the dad says in this, in the course of this story about, like, he and Lestat's history, like, it's Lestat is like resentfully taking care of a family member who really hurt him and messed up his life. Um, yeah. And his father's like last dying wish is that he knows that he could know that Lestat would be able to forgive him for what he did. Mm-hmm. Which and that he recognizes we- now that like Lestat had all this potential that he didn't see at the time and that he wishes he could change what he did but you know Mm -hmm. yeah and he he like it's 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 ironic that he he mourns like the death of who Lestat could have been given that Lestat becomes a vampire 
but he does he does say like he permanently closed off a path to the kind of person Lestat could be if he had like let him I think the story is there was a priest that was going to take him to a university to get a further education and the dad stopped him from doing that um something that more or less yeah and you hinted that this doesn't 100% line up with the backstory we'll get later down the line I'm trying to remember because it has been a while since I read the Mm -hmm. the part where they go really deep into Lissette's backstory but I was just trying to remember like how the backstory went exactly like when Mm -hmm. we find out more about it and if something that I'm very interested in is like how much of their ideas does the author have like when they're writing the first book mostly um, because mm-hmm. I, I've heard, like, for example, uh, J.K. Rowling loves to say that she knew everything <laughs> from the beginning, which is very difficult to believe for various reasons. But yeah. And I, I do think that, for the most part at least, maybe not 100%, I'm, I'm not totally sure on that, um, that this does line up with what Lestat's backstory actually is. So I'm curious if, if we'll find out that, like, if there'll be anything else that hints toward like maybe she had it planned out from the beginning or if it's more like she had this that she wrote here so when she goes to detail it more she has to work around this yeah i'm like i'm interested in that aspect too and i think i said as much last week like knowing that lestat will become the protagonist of these books and seeing how he's portrayed in this one is really interesting to me and i'm like intrigued to see what what happens, if anything, that makes him into, like, the leading man as we go further on? Because he's very much like a, he's like an antagonist in this book. And his portrayal is kind of tragic, I guess, based mm-hmm. on what we learn here. But he doesn't stop being, like, an awful, <laughs> nasty person. <laughs> you know, there's the bit where you get his sad backstory. And then a few pages later, they're trapped in the wine cellar. And Lestat is like, oh, I'm gonna kill her. And, like, trying mm-hmm. to pull bricks out of the wall. And Louis is just watching him being like, can you stop? Can you just stop doing this? And... Yeah, Lestat is sort of a brat. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, uh, I, I maintain that he's grimy. Uh, but I think we, we get a sense of, like, the history that goes into that. And it doesn't excuse it doesn't excuse any of his behavior but it makes him like more interesting as a character um mm-hmm. i i like where his character goes in this chapter even though like a lot of it a lot of it we get through louis who has an interest in like you know portraying Lestat. his name yeah um because he's very invested in setting himself apart from Lestat. but it's like an it's an interesting portrayal of this like shitty dude the louis louis has that section where he his read on lestat is that vampirism is to lestat is an opportunity to take revenge on the world for what he went through in his mortal life mm-hmm. which is an interesting read um it's one of the ones that i'm very wary of because i'm not sure if even lestat is like thinking on that level based what we've seen mm-hmm. I don't know if he's some, like the, the Frenier story. Um, Louis says that Lestat likes to kill young men in the prime of their lives because it's like the most wasted potential. But I don't know if Lestat's 
actions and what we hear him say and do in that story really indicates anything more than like he just wanted to like mess things up you know i don't which is not necessarily contradictory but yeah he uh, does also say that for like his for lestat's first kill he likes to kill a young girl but then for his like biggest kill he likes to kill like a successful young man so like he i I don't know how louis is like i am i am kind of curious how louis is like seeing these um trends if it's going to see yeah because there's a bit about how he is mostly eating animals in this time period um yeah so far at the start of this chapter Louis had still only killed one person, um, and then he kills Daniel, and then after that he kills a bunch of other people. But like, in the interim, the the, the years that pass, mm-hmm. uh, Louis hadn't killed anyone. Or, I mean, he claims to not have killed anyone. It's, you know, we have this. Well, yeah, that's his his telling of the story, at least. For yeah. everything we know, he's only fed on animals and hasn't killed anyone. Which mm-hmm. does track with some of the things that he said in the last chapter, like, you know, that he still feels guilt about taking human lives, so. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, it's it's interesting to me, though, because he, like you said, he has this detailed knowledge of, like, how Lestat hunts. Um, and I do wonder a little bit, like, where he comes by that knowledge, if, by his yeah. admission, I mean, he's mostly just <laughs> killing animals. There's a very possible explanation that Lestat just boasts about it because, you know, that is in in the character of Lestat that we have a picture of right now. Yeah, that's also in character. I am and I'm trying to be suspicious of our narrator here because he doesn't oh, yeah. come off great in this chapter. And... Yeah, it, it's definitely like valid to, to, to read Louis as a possible unreliable narrator. And mm-hmm. especially because, like we said, that we think he has, like, good reason to want to say bad things about Lestat in particular. Mm-hmm. And separate himself from him as much as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... Oh, one thing I had wanted to talk about on the subject of Louis and Lestat. Um, I feel... I wanted to get your idea on this. I feel like Louis actually ends up softening a lot on Lestat through the course of this chapter like once he learns his once he learns you know the part about Lestat's past I think he definitely has the opportunity to get rid of Lestat after they flee Point de Lac but he takes him with him and it's not sort of explicitly brought up in the text but I think he does like I think hearing the story um endears Lestat to him a little bit and he wants yeah. to keep him around and yeah that's definitely like a, a a valid read is that after he hears what the father says before he dies that he sympathizes more with like the way that acts because he you know it's all he's lashing out at like his perceived injustices in his own life mm-hmm. and i mean i can definitely like, if some, not the ways that Lestat does it, but that idea of, like, you know, my life sucks, so, like, I don't want to, like, I, I have definitely felt that way in the past, just mm-hmm. not on the, anywhere near the same level as Lestat. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, I think that's, like, the good 
the good development that we get for Lestat's character is, um, you know, more of a more of a sense of why he acts the way he acts, and you get a a picture of like debatable accuracy, but a much clearer picture of like why he is this petty, vindictive, like cruel vampire, mm-hmm. supposedly. Well, he's going to end up being exactly like this at the end of the book, and I'm just going to be so like sitting here eating my words like okay well i guess he was just like this the whole time well we will only ever get louis story in this book so we'll have to wait for future books to get other perspectives Mm -hmm. and i i'm not like i'm not actually sitting here thinking like well maybe lestat will turn out to have been the secret good guy the whole time (laughs) i think it's just a thing where like his flaws are amplified because we're getting them through the perspective of somebody who doesn't like him and like wants to dissociate himself from him i think like for lasat's popularity even after even regardless of like whose perspective you get it on the reason that people like lasat as a character does somewhat have to do with like the fact that he is like rebellious and he is like you know like a i guess bad boy kind of (laughs) Yeah, so. listen, I've watched, <laughs> I love me an anime boy who, like, sucks ass, and <laughs> Lestat could definitely be that character type. Yeah. So, um... You know who else? should play, you know who should play Lestat in the TV series that we didn't talk about that's coming up? Yeah. I think it should be, uh, Gilgamesh from Fate Stay Night. Should be Lestat. <laughs> yeah, we, um... We'll talk about that a bit more later, but the, I only recently found this out that Anne Rice actually did a fan casting call for an upcoming Vampire Chronicles TV show. Hell yeah. Fantastic. Um, we we start, we picked such a good time to start this podcast, we did not even know it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's see. Um, we covered... Do we want to talk about Babette in general? Yeah, we can talk about Babette. Um, so... I said that Louis doesn't come off great to me in this chapter, and I think it's mostly around Babette's story and the way he talks about her. Um, yeah, he, tr- he has like a very like reply guy on Twitter feminism. Yeah, any any story where like the the guy is like sitting around and talking about how like pure and beautiful and like the best. I think he calls her, like, the purest specimen of humanity or some weird <laughs> shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's It's got some modern, specific modern context that makes it, that makes me kind of side-eye it. But it's also, he's he's a voyeur. Like, it he is. he feels this investment in the life of a woman who he has talked to three times because he, like, spies on her. Yeah, and he, like, he claims that he has, like, a, like, like, strong feelings for her or like special connections or like that he loves her or that you know but like he yeah like he, there were two times that he talked to her directly and then the third time was when he ended up um or when Lestat ended up attacking her after she locked them in a wine cellar so like I wouldn't mm-hmm. say that like their their actual relationship is as he ha- has it in his mind <laughs> Yeah, because he, 
there's so you you know we're cutting back to him and the boy talking in the 70s mm-hmm. and the boy is sort of like he he keeps pressing to be like well what was what were your feelings for her was it romantic like you know what was what was that whole deal and louis sort of purposefully tries to obfuscate it and like you know dress it up in flowery language and being like oh well what i wanted was connection and it was so tragic that i couldn't get the 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 connection that i wanted from her what Um, what he does seem like he's trying to do is to get the boy to be the one to say that you know that louis loved her rather than saying it himself mm -hmm. yeah i think that might even be what happens i think the boy is the first one to say like well was it love then and i I think Louis does have a line or two where he goes like, oh, well, it could have been, you know, it could have been like you say. But he's very slippery in defining it himself, which I think is what sort of caught my attention. Um, And in that scene at the end where he, you know, he's there having this confrontation in her wine cellar and then later on the steps of her house as... He is, you know, he's trying to leave and also convince her of his good intentions towards her. And he really just comes off in that scene, like, mostly he wants her not to think ill of him. And, you know, I feel like if you cared, you would, like, extricate yourself from this woman's life as fast as you can to, like, not cause (laughs) trouble for her. Yeah. Because you've just, you're wanted mass murderers and you're, like, in her basement but he's really just like, listen, don't don't say bad things about me. Don't think ill of me. Um, I want to get the last thing he says to her, actually, because it's there's, a very... There's a version of this story where Louis' feelings are... Like, the feelings that he expresses to her are believable. Where, like, Louis isn't as bad of a person and he is just, like he was forced into this situation and he's a victim of like what Lestat did to him and that, you know, like, so when she says he's of the devil that he doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't feel that that's like a fair way to like judge him because of, but this is the version of the story where he is just an awful person repeatedly in all kinds of ways. Even if he doesn't, he goes for, does go four years without killing people. He does tons of other things that are bad. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, maybe not literally of the devil because there's, you know, this being a book, it questions whether or not, like, God exists but or, or the devil exists. But we know um, Atlantis exists. We do know that Atlantis is coming and we're that's apparently the thing we're most excited for. I just think it's very funny to keep bringing up. <laughs> I, yeah. I really like to read these chapters and be like, eventually Lestat will go to Atlantis. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so like, maybe not literally of the devil, because maybe the devil doesn't literally exist in this story, but like, he is definitely, he he holds the qualities that the Christian believes would tell you the devil embodies. Yeah. And I think there's even a version of this story where his actions outside of his relationship with Babette don't change, but he acts toward her in a way where we're more comfortable saying like, no, he does want a, he does want like a genuine two way connection between her. 
but I think he betrays himself in the actual actions he takes, which is like he he's mostly upset that his like cover has been blown, that he's not in control of his relationship with her. And Mm -hmm. that when she rejects him, he reacts very poorly. I found his I found the last line that he says to her at the end of this chapter, which is very funny to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Remember, I said to her, I might have killed you or let him kill you. I did not. You called me devil. You are wrong. (laughs) Which is, you read that, having read the part where he's like, what I wanted from her was a true connection. And that's just like, remember, I didn't kill you, so I'm not evil. Because I didn't let you get murdered. I didn't murder you, and I didn't let my friend murder you. It's very like... This is, I mean, I I, I used the phrase reply guy earlier, and this also reminds (laughs) me of that concept a lot. Like, like when they when they they're nice and then they get rejected and they immediately turn into like <laughs> yeah like louis louis is literally on this carriage yelling about how he's good actually because he didn't kill her and it's <laughs> yeah. it's, it's laughable honestly capital n capital g nice guy yeah he wants a he wants a medal he he talked to a woman and didn't even kill her yeah, good job. <laughs> oh, man. I definitely did not have this read of Louis the last time I read this book, and it's it's much better. Yeah, sorry, I'm just poisoned. <laughs> I've been on the internet way too long, and I can't. Uh, yeah, well, like, I mean, I didn't even have ideology the last time I read this book, so. <laughs> Listen, you know, you the thing about a reread is you come back to the series, and you have a new perspective, and... You bring new life experiences to the book and you read Louis talk for a while and then you go, oh, thank God he doesn't have a Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know if was Twitter a thing last time I read this, these books. Mm. I guess I guess Twitter was at least a thing in theory because Metal Gear Solid 2 did predict Twitter, but... I can't, I'm not going to Google, like, Twitter release date on this podcast. 2006. You've done it. Okay. Oh, I didn't Google it. I just know it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. We're we're learning a lot about each other. (laughs) Yeah, so, um, Louis is the the nice guy, and Lestat is the, the, the guy who's shitty but thinks he has a justification for it. Yeah, I think Lestat is just, he's just on one constantly in this book. Like, <laughs> always, always off somewhere. He kills multiple people a night. I'm like, so one of my things with vampire stories is I'm always on the lookout for like, how many people, like, what are the fa- what are like the facts established around the feeding? Because it's, it's different, you know. Mm-hmm. This is a, uh, I think this is, I think... As far as this book has established it, they don't have to kill people necessarily to feed on them. That seems well, to be because Lestat I, doesn't kill Louis when he feeds mm-hmm. on him. That's I was gonna say. So like, there's an established part of the story so far where Lestat feeds on Louis and Louis is still alive the next day. But we don't know if like that would have eventually killed Louis because he gets turned into a vampire like another day later. Mm-hmm. Like, it's possible that, like, they feed on someone and they don't die immediately, but they eventually die for, like, whatever reason. 
um, yeah. based on what we know so far. But um, we do know that they at least don't immediately have to die. Mm-hmm. And Lestat, is, and we do know that Lestat is out here killing multiple people a night, which is just like, th- that's pretty much on the extreme end of vampire stories I've read. Like, mm-hmm. I've read some where they never even have to kill people. And it's like once every few weeks, they just need to feed. And, you know, we have a small sample size in this story. Maybe Lestat is just particularly bloodthirsty. But Louis talks about Lestat having like a first feed of the night and then ending the night with like (laughs) killing certain kinds of people, which is, Mm -hmm. man. Well, he does also say he has a preferred appetizer. Yeah, there's, I think there's, I was going to say, like, how do they even make it four years without being discovered as vampires? But that's just in the text. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, Louis has a line, which I wrote down. He says um, something about, like, that he knew. He knew that Lestat was sort of running around the countryside, killing a bunch of people, and that made him feel bad. But comma had Lestat been savage and ugly to my family my guests and my slaves hmm, I couldn't have endured it which is something that he says to the boy um Mm -hmm. a sort of a part of a truism he says in general about like upper class people in the ruling class where you can do as much actual violence as you want but as long as you observe the social niceties you're fine and that's a part that the Sorry to bring it back to the slavery part, but that's a part that the the use of slavery in this book almost gets to mm-hmm. is that like all of the all of the people that they deal with in polite society are basically charmed by them even as even as Louis gives the most flimsy excuses like he missed he missed his sister's wedding and his mother's funeral claiming he had the same disease and was laid up in bed like they are not masters of deception. It's very much that they're rich yeah. and they're moving in polite society and they follow the rules and they can get away with whatever. And the only people who figure them out are the people who they are like most exploiting, which could have been <laughs> an interesting like thematic point, but it just, I don't feel it really goes there enough. Yeah, I mean... There's a, like, there's a version of the story that you can tell where that happens, but it would either need to be written by a different person or use a different, uh, like, lower class. Like, because, like, there is, like, a, like, I think what you're pointing at is, like, a potential, like, class consciousness metaphor mm-hmm. there, but it would, like, it's not this, it's not this one, I'm saying it. <laughs> Yeah, even if you wrote that story, there would still be the thing of there would still be the obvious objection of why do why do you need to invoke slavery to tell this story? Because yeah, yeah. they could have absolutely been found out by any you know any kind of lower class person. It's you know mm-hmm. it's uh, the it's the eight, end of the eighteenth century. Like the the class structure is rigid and omnipresent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Speaking of. I don't have a great segue, um, but that reminds me of, like, when you're talking about the class structure, like, you know, that's especially going to be present in New Orleans, and we get 
a great part that I want to make sure that we mention where Louis goes on for probably two full pages worth of just long, flourishing, detailed sentences describing every little part of New Orleans, its people, its culture, that he can. Mm-hmm. And I, I specifically want to mention this, besides the fact that it's just funny that it's there, that I think this is... I'm trying to remember. I can remember at least, like, two other times in the future where this happens again. And I just think this is, like, one of Anne Rice's things, is that she likes to write these, like these types of passages like the sentences themselves are all very long and very run-on and very detailed Mm -hmm. he talks about like the different the different groups of people like different aspects of the city it's mm -hmm. a weird passage to read because he goes on like this and then i'm like wait but they don't live there it feels Mm -hmm. like it feels like an inordinate amount of of attention to to employ in service of describing a setting that the book isn't like at yet. I don't know if they will later mm-hmm. go to New Orleans as Well they did at the end of this chapter I think that is established as like they're where they're planning to head. Oh fair enough. So but, but yeah, like um I'm trying to find there's a lovely sentence that I want to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, let's see. Here we go. Right. While you while you look for it, I'll bring here up our... Is, here is just one sentence out of the two whole pages of this to give you lovely listeners an idea in case you didn't read this yourself. And of course, the planters, always the planters, coming to town with their families in shining landis to buy evening gowns and silver and gems to crowd the narrow streets on the way to the old French opera house and the Theatre d'Orleans and the St. Louis Cathedral, from whose open doors come the chants of high mass over the crowds of the Place d'Armes on Sunday, over the noise and bickering of the French market, over the silent, ghostly drifts of the ships along the raised waters of the Mississippi, which float against the levee above the ground of New Orleans itself, so that the ships appear to float against the sky. That's a good description. I'm just like, oh, why I mean, that... I, I do enjoy those passages. I just find it really interesting that like she seems to be a big fan of writing these. I think we'll see more of them going forward. I can remember at least one or two. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of like, why is this here before they go to New Orleans? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he yeah, they this this chapter is basically the prelude to them finally leaving the plantation and making it to New Orleans and being there. So mm-hmm. I have a I have a line I would like to read. You gave mm-hmm. us our you gave us our world building watch for the day. I'm gonna give us I'm gonna give us our gay shit watch. <laughs> uh, this starts with Louis talking. As you can see, my face is very white and has a smooth, highly reflective surface, rather like that of polished marble. Yes, the boy nodded and appeared flustered. It's very ellipses. Beautiful, actually, said the boy. I'm just saying. Mm. men are out here they're calling each other beautiful getting flustered about it girls are writing about it on fanfiction.net until they get deleted then the circle of life goes on (laughs) actually so when you segued into talking about new orleans from the class structure where i Mm. thought you were going to go was the bit we talked about like 
the metatextual weirdness of Babette's whole story. Mm-hmm. Um, because we we derisively called Louis a reply guy. I think he's also a capital capital F capital A feminist ally, as he oh, yeah. as he appears to her uh, as she is in despair because her brother has died and. There's no male heir to inherit the plantation. And he tells her, like, you can do it. Just don't let anyone tell you you can't do it. Which is a very, like, he tells her to lean into it. Which is, I mean, I'm no expert on French property inheritance laws. But I'm pretty sure the main problem is not that Babette is, like, letting the world get her down. You know? Yeah. It is. It's an odd... It's it's just an it's sort of an odd part of the chapter as well. Um, I like it um, because I think it reveals a lot about Louis's character. And I guess for some reason I'm on team like anti Louis now. But <laughs> I think it. I'm predisposed to seeing him as an unreliable narrator, and I think this does a lot to undermine his own protestations about how he is such a respectful vampire even as he murders slaves and is you know hanging purposefully like abetting Lestat as he mostly abetting Lestat as he goes around killing multiple people a night yeah is but he's a good person because he he values those lives he you know he just has a lot of respect for life. Especially for women. But only white women. <laughs> Louis said women's rights. Yeah. <sighs> I, I It's interesting. I really like... I just like... I feel like we have our two main characters. Um, mm-hmm. As much as I have the big objection about their characters. I think they're like... I think they're very interesting. And as much as I am on, I guess, the Louis hate watch... I am, I still like, mostly like reading his narration and his thoughts and... Yeah, I mean, this is, I haven't read a whole lot of books that are in this format besides this one. And I almost think that's a shame because I think seeing the interactions between the boy and Louis in between him telling the story and also seeing which parts of the story Louis, like, puts emphasis on and which parts of the story he pauses in or which parts mm-hmm. of the story the boy feels like he wants to interrupt and like ask a question like it adds like a whole other depth to like the the, the telling of the story yeah there's a yeah there's a there's a, we haven't talked about it as much but there's like there's always very good interaction between louis and the boy there's one specifically where they sort of have a they confront the they confront the premise as it's falling apart and Louis says, oh, you probably can't use any of this in any kind of newspaper capacity. Can you? And the boy's like, well, no, but like, I'm really interested now and I want to hear it. <laughs> um, and, and there's also a point where, um, that I found really interesting where the book stops to tell us that the boy is changing the tape. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I means th- that this has that- already been going long enough that, the boy needs to use multiple tapes to to record all of it, but he is definitely going to use that resource, those resources for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's changed the tape twice now, actually. Oh, is it um, twice? 
I think so. I think it's happened... If it happens in... I think it definitely happens in the first chapter. So if it happens again in this chapter, that'll be the second time. But we might just be remembering something that happens in the first one. Either way, Louis's been talking for a long time. Yeah. And it's become like a, a personal interest of the boys more than a professional one. And I'm also interested in seeing where that goes because... He's definitely getting, like, more comfortable around Louis, which is maybe a bad thing for him as we question Louis's character and <laughs> his uh, kill record and his respect for life. Um, but fortunately for Daniel, or the boy, sorry. <laughs> not fortunately for Daniel. Daniel it does not go well for. Well, I accidentally said what the boy's name is. <laughs> oh, was the boy also named Daniel? Yeah. That's um, interesting. For- yeah, fortunately for the boy, um, he will not have to suffer Louis' feminism because he he doesn't get nice guy Louis. <laughs> no, he only gets like nice guy Louis talking about it, talking about <laughs> himself as a nice guy. <laughs> oh yeah, um, there was something that I remember you mentioning that we I don't think we brought up yet, which is. I don't think we brought up, which was um, parallels between Lestat and Paul. Did we talk about that? Um, I don't think we went over it so much, but it was definitely something I saw as after Louis hears about Lestat's past and starts to, it makes him definitely reevaluate Lestat, as we said. But I think what's interesting is he specifically seems to be seeing Lestat as a sort of parallel to Paul because he has a lot of he obviously has a lot of guilt about Paul's death and when he hears Lestat's backstory uh, I think he draws an explicit connection between Paul who was this person who was really absorbed in his learning and his books religious books um, to the point that it resulted in his death and then Lestat who is somebody who was interested in those books and had that interest cut off and it resulted in him becoming this vampire. And like I said, there's that point where Louis has the opportunity to get rid of Lestat after the whole fiasco at Point de Lac, but he keeps him around. And I think definitely part of that is that he starts to see, like, shade, maybe unconsciously, she see shades of his brother in Lestat and associate the guilt he feels about Paul with his relationship with Lestat, which is a whole thing. Mm-hmm. very <clears throat> difficult weird and fraught emotional territory which is what I'm here for personally <laughs> yeah um is there anything else I think I think I'm just basically everything in this chapter I think I'm just ready to see the dirt where does it go I want that drama yeah and I'm ready to see a chapter that has slightly fewer shitty elements of belay. I hope so too. Alright. Yeah, I guess I guess the uh the sun is rising, so to speak, on our podcast this week. Uh do you wanna tell uh, uh the people where they can find us? Am I gonna do a vampire fact? Oh yeah fuck. Okay, <laughs> cut that part out. No, I'm definitely leaving it in. All all the bloopers. <sighs> Anyway, um, so 
I mentioned last week that I know about like the vampires being invited in, and then I didn't actually say what it is, and I got some flack from at least one person for that. So I guess I I'll kept, just. I noticed, but I kept it silent. <laughs> so I, I wanted to double check this, and then I never did. So I'm just gonna say this is my understanding of it, and if it's wrong, then someone at a stopcast on Twitter and tell me so I can. Ooh, nice one. <laughs> um. So my understanding is that because uh, when Bram Stoker wrote Jack Dracula, this was like the first, uh, the first time that the, that idea that became popular for a while of like the the noble aristocratic vampire, which these characters um, mirror somewhat, but also have like more of like the modern like the vampire who's very like in the streets and very like this is kind of like the in between point between Dracula and like. Uh, Vampire the Masquerade, but mm-hmm. before Dracula and before Bram Stoker penned this idea of like the aristocratic, like proper vampire, the um, the vampires were more like uh, like Count Orlock from uh, Count Orlock from Nosferatu, and so one of the ideas I guess that originated with Dracula was because I I, I assume the idea is that because he was this proper you know, like, uh, gentleman, that one of his rules, whether he chose it or probably it was enforced on him somehow, I don't know, but he would, he wouldn't be able to enter a house without being invited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's like one of my favorite vampire weaknesses in general. I think it's like just a really interesting restriction. Also leads to some good comedy in Buffy. <laughs> Yeah, and that's sort of interesting because Buffy is more like a modern example of just like the the vampire who's just like a regular person who just like lives in society. You know, we live in a society. And, <laughs> and there's All some right. vampires in it. And um, and so like that idea of like the, the proper vampire needing to be invited in doesn't really apply in Buffy's case, but mm-hmm. they still have that, that uh, like concept that like vampires need to be invited in. Yeah, I I wonder if they ever address it in Buffy as like um specifically a thing that happens. I know there's a few episodes about like who which vampires have permission to enter which homes and that either becoming a problem or a boon in some cases. I know there was a whole thing with like Spike having permission to come into someone's house because they needed to give it to him for one plot and then that house was like forever unsafe against Spike when he was like evil yeah that's like um that's what it's an interesting thing but it's also an example of what i was saying right like it more rules you add to a vampire's like what a vampire is the um the more complicated it is for like the viewers to 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 track everything like Mm -hmm. if you have vampires that need to be invited in um if they need to be invited they probably don't need to be invited into public places but can they get into the uh, like the entrance way of an apartment building without an invitation or do they need an invitation into the the entire building or only into individual apartments um, if they're mm-hmm. invited can it be revoked does it need to be revoked or can they come back later or is it just like a one-time deal like there's just like so many things that like aren't clear unless you make it clear and 
Yeah, even this then, like, like keeping track of like each different iteration of this rule in different stories is like you know, mm-hmm. it's not great storytelling to get into what metaphysically does the universe consider a home, which is why <laughs> I shouldn't write a vampire story because I will go there. <laughs> I got a degree in sociology. I have to go there. I'm compelled. If someone. If I am not part of a family and I'm renting a single room out of someone else's house and they invite the vampire into their house, do I have to invite them into my room in the house or is my room made unsafe by other people? Viewers, in <laughs> while we're off while we're off for the for the rest of the week, think about whether a vampire could get into your sublet and answer the and send your answers to Lestotcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so um, now we've gotten our, our single weekly segment out of the way with our vampire fact. Now we can transition into the outro. I can't believe my sun rising thing was like part of the blooper. God damn it. <laughs> I thought it was cool. You could always say it again. No, it's done. It's over. The moment's passed. There's always the next The sun's week. already out. The sun's out and I'm gonna die. Ah. <sighs> jealous so you can find our podcast on twitter at Lestotcast. you can find me on twitter at arsenic shots you can find olivia at at great grieve you're not gonna say your bit damn it ash it's a kind of burb it's a kind of bird you can email us questions comments whatever at Lestotcast at gmail.com and we will read address discuss next time uh <laughs> olivia has helpfully written here write us rate us on itunes or we'll die <laughs> we need the engagement we need the metrics we're not vampires we need to be sustained by please, metrics and content if you do like the show please rate us on itunes so that we can get that exposure but not we're exposure five to fucking, the sun because we're five fucking stars like Listen to us. We're five stars. (laughs) Um, We are hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network, which you can find at abnormalmapping.com and patreon.com slash abnormalmapping. And we'll be back next week with our third section of Interview with the Vampire. Until then, please don't tell Anne Rice about us. Bye. Bye.